Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Before we get going today, I thought I would mention, uh, be sure to visit mentalmodelspodcast.com, the website. On that website, you'll find links to George and my forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making. That'll be coming out in the fall uh, of this year, 2019. Be sure to also visit our YouTube channel, which also links to mentalmodelspodcast.com, the website. Uh, one of the uh, most successful episodes so far has been on the topic of confirmation bias. This is a situation where you basically develop a theory about the world uh, or about the economy or an investment position. And from that point forward, you start to distort your perception by overweighting any evidence that supports that particular narrative and systematically discounting the critical negative evidence that's often there but we have a hard time paying attention to it. This is one of the most pervasive biases that we have in our lives and our, our investing as well. And uh, there's a colorful analogy here for uh, investments that's related to confirmation bias. George, do you want to talk about that? The most important thing that you're trying to figure out when you're looking at the macro is whether or not we're leading into a change in the economic cycle from an expansion into a contraction uh, because all of the most significant drawdowns that you've seen in the stock market have occurred when you have had a recession or a contraction in the economy. Uh, and outside of that, you really want to buy every dip because uh, you'll eventually see new highs within the uh, scope of an expansion. The uh, difficulty, though, is trying to predict when that actually occurs. And Warren Buffett once had an excellent description of uh, what an expansion was like. It was kind of like a party, right, where you're, you're there at the party and uh, there's a fair amount of drinking that's going on, very much like Cinderella's ball, right? Everybody's having a great time as the night wears on. Uh, the difficulty associated with that is that when we get to midnight, everything turns into pumpkins and mice. The problem, though, is that the clocks have no hands. We don't know exactly when midnight strikes, the recession comes, and everything falls apart. And people also talk of irrational exuberance, right, which probably will occur more as the party wears on. That's right. Everybody gets, they've been drinking more. You know, it gets wilder and wilder as time goes by. And then uh, to kick in another mixed, uh, mixed metaphor here is uh, that the party comes to an end when the Fed takes the punch bowl away, right? Uh, and that's, that's their role, and that's them raising interest rates. But the issue comes when we think about it in the, in the context of confirmation bias, is that there's so much data when we're looking at the macroeconomy, and there are relationships that are involved with long and variable lags where uh, it's very difficult uh, to look at that data 
and come up with a very firm view. So there's also uh, major secular issues that can be identified that will cause problems for the economy, but it can take a very long time for them to come to fruition. And what Buffett has said before, and I think is accurate, is when you have somebody that, that looks at the macro economy and they prognosticate, they go and they give an opinion about what is happening, uh, that it is typically more uh, illustrative of that person and what they're like and what their outlook is than it is of what the macro economy actually is. Because we tend to take our own views and then force them upon the data. And we'll mine the data to be able to find things that support our views. And there's always something there. There's all, it, whether it's a long-term view, you can look at the, indebtedness is a great example. The indebtedness in the United States has grown tremendously from 1980 until today. We've gone from basically uh, aggregate debt being about 150% of GDP to being 390% of GDP. And the thought is that ultimately that's unsustainable. Uh, and there are people that uh, are perma bears, right? The doom crew, so to speak, that will look at things like aggregate debt and say that, that you know, the end is nigh. Well, the end has been nigh uh, since 2000 or 1995. I mean, was it really bad when we when it doubled, when it went to 300% of GDP? You know, and that's like, oh, that's totally unsustainable. Uh, or uh, when the debt got to 350 or 360 or 370. The point is, is though that's a problem and that it'll ultimately have to be reconciled at some point in time. Not necessarily and not, not today. And there's just no hands on that clock to know really there's what no minute you're at. That's uh, right. So it can feel like 11.59 p.m. a lot of the time. So a lot of this goes back to uh, someone's personal subjectivity or their psychology being imposed upon a complicated data set. It's exactly the kind of condition that we find the confirmation bias operating. And this probably first showed itself with Herman Rorschach's inkblot test, which was developed in the 1920s. This was a basically a German uh, mental health professional of the day trying to find a way to categorize different uh, mental disorders or problems people would have. And uh, this is a well-known metaphor now uh, for any ambiguous situation. Uh, basically, what he would Rorschach would do is is present a uh, an individual with these ambiguous ink blots, which were not designed to be anything specific. And the person would impose their own meanings upon that complicated picture. And so this is, uh, I, I always think of this one example in my own life. My workplace, there's a stairwell that has uh, a modern sort of abstract art piece that kind of has this uh, floating gray blob. And I've just decided that's a Rorschach ink blot. I, and that's completely a subjective impression of my own. It wasn't the artist's intent. And from that point on, I, I proceed to find, you know, what does the ink blot look like today? So it's just an example of uh, what we do as, as human beings, as information processors, we're constantly seeking to find meaning in data sets. And things like the economy, especially the macro economy, are so large and dynamic, and yet the time scale is extremely hard to predict. Uh, and so we're left to make 
tremendous uh, interpretations and fill in a lot of gaps with our own sense of the way things are going. I think that's right. I think uh, that you have to be very weary of prognosticators that are out there that uh, talk about issues that they see within the economy. Uh, you know, if it if it uh, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So it's very likely they're going to get airtime because it's much more interesting to listen to somebody who sees doom on the horizon, and you know that that can get some level of arousal that uh, can be newsworthy, as opposed to someone who says, "Oh yes, you know, I look at the economic indicators; everything seems just fine. You know, the expansion will continue," uh, as opposed to well, there's this massive issue that everybody's ignoring and uh, that if they, uh, you know, for instance, the, the debt issue uh, and if it's not heated, uh, ultimately we'll see uh, a 1987-like event where there'll be just a, a terrible capitulation within the stock market overnight. And so if you think of the economy as one giant inkblot, the media, in a sense, is like a camera that zooms in on certain parts of it and tries to tell the public what is going on. And I think this leads a lot of people astray in terms of what they think is really happening economically in the world because there's so much uh, coverage of these different macro factors. And a lot of beginning investors think that the, the fate of a particular investment is tied to the entire macro structure and that's uh, that that's the way to make money is if the whole economy is winning you automatically win and that's of course not really the case that's right so there are drawdowns uh, that occur and they're dramatic when they occur at the time uh, but what happens with most investors is uh, they are constantly trying to predict recession so they liquidate their positions in the middle of an expansion then they start to see that the market continues to rise. So they get involved again at a higher level uh, because all of their friends are making money and they're not making money or they, they see that the market continues to rise uh, and they're no longer concerned. Uh, and then some other factor comes up. There's prognosticators that worry about this issue, whether it be uh, at this at this point in time, we're, we're concerned about trade uh, or you can be concerned about Brexit. You can be concerned uh, about uh, the European, you know, the, Greece getting taken out of the European Union. I mean, there's been all of these opportunities for people to get nervous about what's going on, and you can focus on different stress points within the economy and say, oh, there, that's, that's evidence that we're, we're going to have some sort of a, a drawdown. But the reality is the expansion just continues, and you would have been better off if you had done nothing. And somewhat troublesomely, in addition to predicting a recession, uh, when recessions really do happen, there's, of course, a lot of high-profile prognosticators that just before were saying everything's great, it's going to continue indefinitely, we don't see any reason why it wouldn't. And so people are often caught out, and really at a, at a high level of expertise as well, not, not a fringe character saying this, but people can be very wrong about these things. Yeah, it's funny. You always got to look at people's incentives. If somebody is not aligned with an investment bank, right, then their incentive is to get attention. They'll be the ones that are the, the broken clock that gets it right, you know, eventually, uh, because time just happens to match up with it, uh, where they can talk, they'll talk negatively about uh, the circumstances. And then eventually, yes, you have a recession. 
And that's what's so tricky also is you're trying to predict something that certainly cyclical, but the time scale is not in any way constant. It's like a clock with no hands that also varies in how long a minute is. <laughs> that's, because, that's you know, it, it, frequently, uh, we, we, especially in recent times, we, you can't follow any sort of timing cycle from the past. And a lot of the factors have changed that drive um, the economy forward. And so that makes all of this essentially more subjective. Well, and, and on the on the other hand, you'll also get, uh, like you were saying, there's pro there's prognosticators that are bullish all throughout, even coming into the recession. They tend to be associated with investment banks, right? Because investment banks, uh, you're, you're not going to trade stocks. You're not going to buy stocks if you think a recession is coming, right? It's not good business. So typically, the investment bank prognosticators, they have an incentive to be positive and to say, oh, no, everything's fine. Stay calm. Stay calm. Nothing to see here. Move along. And that may not even be a case where someone uh, consciously says, I'm incentivized to say the following. Uh, a lot of times these can act in more subtle ways that, of course, that is the incentive. And so the confirmation bias often is hard to see in oneself because it can be just uh, like a, a kernel that starts to sort of build over time or a snowball effect will happen where uh, you're, you would like it to go a certain way. And that, that subtle bias can then lead you to spin out a narrative that's much more embellished and developed to the point where you really believe that narrative. And so uh, it's not always people being manipulative for their own incentivized reasons. Classically, this can happen where um, someone simply has gotten so deep in the narrative that they've come to really believe it. And then you're really on dangerous ground when it comes to being biased. Well, and you can see a couple of different forces that can take place in the course of your investing. For instance, if you have an investment that causes you to lose a lot of money because they, uh, the company, it, the industry in which it's, it's operating ends up hitting a difficult spot, you, that may color your view of the macroeconomy in general, and you may become more conservative. And part of that is because, as we've talked about in the past, when we suffer losses, they tend to have twice the psychological impact that a gain does. So your, your entire view of the market may be negative. Conversely, if you have shorts that have performed quite well for you, right, you may start to extrapolate the success that those shorts have had to the rest of the economy and, and become quite negative. Right. And this is once again a case of whatever the events are that have impacted you, you run the risk of overinterpreting and uh, weighing those too heavily within your mind. So, George, what are some tips that you would offer? Um, it seems like one thing we've, we've started to move toward is you want to focus on some structural factors that... Um, are, are better indicators that are maybe a little less likely to be infused with a lot of subjectivity. What are some of those factors people can pay attention to? Well, the way I would, I would structure that thought is for one, this is my Rorschach to begin with, right? These, these are the dots that I like to look at uh, when I'm looking at the economy and things that I've seen where I've seen professionals. Uh, I, there was a guy that I worked with uh, by the name of Zach Herzl, who uh, actually did quite well during uh, the 2008 uh, crisis, the Great Recession, at he, he made a very uh, successful call of the turn. 
what I learned from Zach is that you can look at weekly jobless claims as a very significant indicator as to what's happening within the macro economy in real time. So two things that I like to look at. One, you should be relatively secure and you should feel uh, like the dip should be bought uh, if there is not an inversion of the yield curve within an expansion. So, and, and there is always the possibility that things change and we've seen a lot of changes in the economy that uh, could, could undermine this, but uh, every single recession that we've had uh, since uh, we've basically been, been tracking this has been preceded by an inversion of the yield curve. Now, what is that? What is an inversion of the yield curve? The yield curve is basically uh, the various maturities that we have for government bonds, right? So you have the three-month uh, note, you have uh, two-year treasuries, you have five-year treasuries, you have 10-year treasuries, and you have 30-year treasuries. So what happens when we have an inversion, that is where the near-term uh, maturity treasuries have interest rates that are higher than later-term treasuries. Typically, we focus on the three-month and the 10-year. So if the 10-year yield, for instance, like right now, is at 2.1 uh, percentage points yield, and the uh, three-year or the three-month is at uh, 2.3, that is an inversion because you're getting higher yield off of the shorter term maturity. That creates a lot of problems for the economy. Banks, for instance, borrow money based off of short term rates uh, for like your deposits. Those tend to be the way which you get paid on your deposits tend to be keyed off of whatever the short term rate is. And then they lend based off of the longer term rates. That tends to be the benchmark that is used to be able to determine how much they can make for the loans that they're extending. So when you get an inversion, that means that they're paying more for the money that they're borrowing than they're receiving for the money that they're lending. Or at least the net, ar net interest margin has collapsed somewhat. So that tends to provide an incentive for banks to lend less. And that tends to lead to a contraction in the availability of credit, which then can lead to a recession. So I like to look for an inversion of the yield curve. That tends to precede the end of the cycle by anywhere from seven months to 24 months. So it's not an immediate thing. It's not like, oh, okay, there's an inversion. Now I can go short the market because we have a recession. Again, you have a long period of time, but it's a necessary but not you know, it's a necessary element. You typically have to, you have to see that inversion before you're going to have a recession. Yeah, that seems like an important point. There's not a uh, very clear prediction of time here. Time is built into that indicator, but there's a lot of leeway as to when, when things would uh, turn and how they would play out. So that, that's again, what makes this so difficult uh, is there, there's probably not anything that's uh, so impactful and and so predictive of timing um what are some other tips you would you would suggest about uh, how much to think about the macro economy for example i think it should be very like the only time it matters is is when there's going to be a turn uh, i think 
there are, there are macro funds that try to play off of short-term movements and in interest rates or currencies, things of that nature. But I think it's not a bad idea to watch the yield curve to see if there's an inverted. The yield curve has predicted 10 out of the last six recessions, right? Meaning that the, there are false positives, that you'll have inversions of the yield curve, and then you don't have a recession that takes place. That's what makes it even more difficult. But usually what we, what we see is, is we see a deep inversion and a, one that lasts for longer than a month. In this case, actually, we've actually seen this happen in the United States. We've had an inversion of the three of the year curve based off of the three month and the 10 year since May of this year. And it's still inverted. Uh, and it was relatively deep. Typically, you need 25 basis points worth of inversion for an extended period of time. This has been about 20 basis points. But if you think about how low the yields are already, that's probably sufficient to be something that should raise your concern. The short-term indicator that we look at uh, that I think is important to see what when, when you're really at the cusp of recession is the weekly jobless claims. This is high-frequency data. Every single week, we get a jobless claims number. And if you see that, and typically what happens is as you get longer and longer into the cycle, the weekly jobless claims uh, gets lower and lower and lower because the you know people are finding work. And so there's just not as many people there looking to get unemployment insurance. And then uh, we start to see that spike, and that's because people are getting fired, right? And when we see that spike, that tends to be coincident with a downturn in the economy. Now, one week is not meaningful, but when you look at a four-week average, if that really meaningfully moves up, that means that you're, you're entering into recession, and that is when I think it's a good time to take some chips off the table. Now, that's my part. Now, you can do relatively well just ignoring all of this. Find good companies, invest in them, hold, hold them and buy them throughout. You know, constantly put money into the market as it goes down in a recession. Uh, buy buying, you know, great companies uh, and then holding them for a long period of time. It's also much more tax efficient. Uh, and you're a lot less likely to screw up trying to call the cycle. Most people mess it up because like a Rorschach, it's a reflection of how they're feeling. If they happen to be mopey, you know, they broke up with their girlfriend or, you know, whatever, their, their outlook on life is a little gloomier. So they look at all this data and they start to interpret it in a very negative way. Uh, then... Uh, they may choose to make investment decisions when they're being affected by that view. What I've described is something that's very mechanical, right? I'm just looking at this yield curve. If I see this inversion, it is what it is. I look at the historical consistency of that. And then I also look for these weekly jobless claims to spike to know the, the exact timing as to when to get nervous. Yeah, and that's probably a good uh, warning sign as well. If, you, if you're too emotional about something, you're, you're likely to be biased about it, or maybe you're going to bring too much subjectivity to it. The more structural or mechanical the factor is, the, the less likely it is that you're going to sort of overweight it, uh, at least systematically. So um, that's very good advice. Uh, to, to sum up, we... Uh, we tend to have, bring subjectivity into our interpretations quite a lot. This is more a risk when you have amorphous, huge data sets, and especially when those data sets play out uh, over a time scale that we don't understand. So 
the human brain is extremely uh, well suited toward uh, short term successes. Every time we have to project far out into the future, the situation becomes more and more complex. And uh, we have a hard time stepping back and realizing just how difficult uh, that is because there's so many invisible factors. So one strategy that you might use is to think a little bit less about the macro just because it's that complicated and that hard to predict. And uh, when you do think about it, uh, have some in your investing life and you'll do better. Yes, definitely. There's always uh, some data point there to justify your view. And you never know when that clock is going to strike midnight. Looks like it's about time. Let's get out of here. All right. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.